I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, May 3rd, 2011. The parade of insanity continues. second program decisions oh man I hope I have time thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is Chris Roseborough and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God there is no shortage of crazy things being said and done out there and all of that is kind of well needless and the reason why it's needless is well because we have the Bible God has spoken. We know in Scripture, Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not your dreams for your life or anything like that. We can't tell if those are God-breathed or if they're just flat-out delusional. Um, No, but uh, we can tell uh, that all of Scripture is God-breathed. So we're supposed to read and believe all Scripture. That's kind of the way it goes. So when a pastor ascends into the pulpit or... Um, how should I say it, um, uh, uh, takes his position as the actor on the stage, <clears throat> uh, then uh, and he's supposed to open up God's Word, and his job is to teach people what God's Word says. You teach the Scriptures in all their fullness, or you know, as Jesus said, everything that I have commanded you. You can all the Scripture being God breathed. It's all from God. It's all from Jesus Christ. Uh, they're one and the same person, if you know what I mean. Now we, like I said before, we the Scriptures make it clear that we uh, we worship and serve a triune God, God in three persons, one God, three persons. Not exactly how all that. No, I don't exactly know how all of that works. It doesn't really matter. God's in a different category of being than we are. We are created, and uh, we well, for each 
uh, for each individual, there is one person, uh, unless you have multiple personality disorder. But God is not suffering from multiple personality disorder. There are truly three unique persons in the one true God. But uh, anyway, and uh, so he, when he speaks, he is spoken. So he speaks in Genesis 1, he speaks in Leviticus, he speaks in Deuteronomy, he speaks in First and Second Kings, he speaks in the, in the writings of the prophets, and he speaks in the writings of the apostles. And, uh, you know, and it's pretty clear, you ain't going to find out nothing about Jesus except for through the apostles, the men that uh, he established to be his witnesses, to tell the world of what he has done. And so I always find it just ridiculously insane when you have so-called modernist liberal theologians who want to find, who want to get to the real historical Jesus, so, because the Jesus of faith, it, like it just, it just can't believe in that guy. I mean, he performs miracles, he walks on water, he raises the dead, gives sight to the blind, and well, he actually rises from the dead himself on the third day. Well, that can't be the real Jesus. We want to get to the historical Jesus, not the Jesus of faith. And see, that's the beauty of the whole thing. You ain't getting to you ain't getting to Jesus, period, except for through the apostles' writing, because they were the eyewitnesses. And the Jesus of history is not separatable, separatable from the uh, Jesus of faith. You know, the one who claimed to be God in human flesh. Anyway, so when a pastor ascends to the pulpit or the stage, <clears throat> uh, his job is to preach the word and to do it correctly, to rightly handle God's word and to point people to Christ, to uh, to uh, preach God's law against our sinful nature and against the sins that we commit, and to proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins as the solution for that, and to and, and to you know and to really forth tell what God has revealed in his word um in you know in let's just say in a pinch minimum requirements are that you can read you don't need to do any commentary i mean it's possible for somebody to teach the word of god just by reading it and then when you get to those difficult parts where you're trying to help you help people understand what's going on, well, that takes a little bit more skill and some training. But the, the scriptures make it clear that you know a pastor is to study and show himself approved as one who rightly handles, who rightly cuts the word of God. And if uh, your pastor can't rightly cut the word of God, well, you either get need to get him some uh, Bible cutting lessons. <clears throat> Or you need to uh, maybe find a different pastor. So it's uh, yes, one of the things we noticed here at Fighting for the Faith. And today we have contestant number two in our um, worst Easter sermon of 2011 contest, which is now a tradition here at Fighting for the Faith. This is our third year running with uh, this particular contest. And Carrie Shook will be um, <clears throat> preaching today in hour number two. Didn't we just do a Carrie Shook sermon review? Yeah, but see, somebody had to send me the recommendation and say, Chris, you got to see this. You got to see this. And I saw it and I went, oh, man. In fact, um, yeah, one of the things I, I always kind of decry about uh, Carrie Shook, he is the only guy that I know. He's the only pastor that I know who can take, who can actually attempt to do a manly theme in a sermon and completely, well, neuter it and uh, and feminize it. It's it's an unbelievable gift. And somebody said to me, Chris, you know, you really need to have Carrie Shook update music. And this is what they recommended that I do. Let's go, girls. 
feel like a woman. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that was if we <laughs> we ever do any Carrie Shook uh, updates during the first hour here at the at Fighting for the Faith, I will be sure to be playing Shania Twain's "Man, I Feel Like a Woman." Any. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the program today. That was totally gratuitous, by the way. I apologize for the gratuitous um, <clears throat> Shania Twain music. And uh, I must confess that while doing that, I was doing the white man overbite and was actually doing some praise and worship, hands up in the air kind of um, <clears throat> things. Anyway, um <laughs> All right, I've got today on uh, on the program uh, a couple of things I want to do here uh, in the first hour. Number one, I want to take a look at uh, part three of um, John MacArthur's uh, critique of Rob Bell. And the name of this one is entitled Bell's Inferno. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at uh, the, the part three of John MacArthur's critique of Rob Bell and uh, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, read a news story from the uh, Christian Post entitled The Missional Manifesto by Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer and a few others, including Dan Kimball, have recently published what they're calling the Missional Manifesto in an attempt to uh, define and clarify what the term missional means. I think uh, these guys have taken uh, the cri- the criticisms of the whole missional thing to heart and are, are attempting to try to define the term. I don't, however, having read the document itself, I don't think they've. Uh, well, I don't think they've accomplished what they set out to do. And uh, in 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 fact, I'm going to make the claim that uh, despite the fact that I know Dan Kimball personally, I don't know Ed Stetzer or, or uh, Tim Keller or any of those guys, but. Um, that this is really a waste of time. It, it's this isn't even really. I don't even consider this to be a, a valid biblical category, and it's like it's too complicated, is the way I put it. I, I'm a firm believer in Occam's razor, especially when it comes to doctrine and theology. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Um, you remember the original uh, message of the gospel was entrusted to fishermen, and uh, if you were to ask the apostle Peter if he was missional, he he might throw a fishbone at you or something. But anyway, so we'll take a look at that today. And then uh, and then after the break, oh, man, don your crash helmets, don your crash helmets. Uh, after the first break, we're going to be listening to um, some sound bites uh, that I've collected from the movie Audience of One. And... Uh, and Scott uh, Scott Kingsolver, who we've who we've interviewed here on the uh, program, young man who uh, who really truly wants to be in ministry and uh, and proclaim Christ and Him crucified for us, since he's recently uh, secured a job at I think at a Reformed Baptist uh, church in Texas, and so you know we're very thankful that God has uh, found a place for him to. Uh, to serve his neighbor in ministry, uh, but uh, he on my Facebook wall, you know, posted the um, the uh, the YouTube video that uh, the, the the trailer for this movie, this documentary entitled "Audience of One," and <laughs> it was like watching the most painful slow motion train wreck I have ever seen. And I'll give you details when we get to the segment. But what I found interesting is is that 
th- this documentary is about a, a Pentecostal church in San Francisco uh, whose pastor believed that he had received a vision from God for them to uh, create a Christian film uh, production company and and to create a two hundred million dollar uh, sci-fi film. Uh, you know, uh, Star Wars meets uh, the Ten Commandments story of Joseph kind of thing. And the the documentary follows all of these people through their completely misguided misadventures and ho- just tra- it's a tragedy just to listen to. But what I found interesting, and I think the reason why Scott put this on my uh, Facebook wall, was specifically because of the fact that uh, that the uh, language we hear from the pastor in this uh, this movie um, is exactly the same kind of innovative vision casting. Got to have audacious faith kind of stuff that we hear from many of the seeker-driven pastors, and uh, and how they're trained according to uh, Blackerby via uh, Dan Sutherland and the uh, the whole purpose-driven uh, training methodologies these guys go through. It's the same thing, but uh, this is uh, this is like watching the William Tapley version of it, and. Oh, man. So we're going to be playing that uh, later in the program today, so you're not going to want to miss that. And then, like I said, hour number two, contestant number two in our worst Easter sermon of the year contest, and that'll be Carrie Shooks uh, recovering the treasure of Easter, complete with a pirate ship. I am not kidding. And so you, you just don't want to miss that. But uh, we're going to dive into uh, the program proper, and we're going to be doing a uh, Rob Bell update, which requires us to do this. Champagne supernova is, and uh, and many of the things that Rob Bell claims is Christian theology. I have no idea what he's talking about either. Um, John MacArthur from the Grace to You blog, uh, his uh, third installment of his um, very well well documented uh, biblical analysis of uh, Rob Bell's false doctrine, false theology, false ideas that contradict the clear teaching of the Word of God and show that really he's not a Christian believer, that he's something completely different, uh, even though he tries to uh, don his wolf clothing, uh, his sheep clothing over his wolf clothing, he does not succeed. Um, So the call-out box on this one begins with, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5, through 
those of our Lord, uh, the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Let me read that again. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5. through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved and deprived of the truth, who suppose that religion is a means of, well, gain. John MacArthur writes, No one in all the scriptures has more to say about hell than Jesus. And Dr. MacArthur is flat out right here. He's absolutely 100% correct. And when you study the doctrine of hell... What you find is is that there it is actually uh, taught not very clearly but clear in uh, in the Old Testament. There are very powerful uh, word pictures regarding the afterlife in the word picture that do in fact um, describe the, the evil wicked doers as suffering in fire. It do, there are passages that describe that, but the problem is is that it's tough to kind of tease out what's what we're supposed to know in all of this. So the person in in the scripture who actually teaches the most about hell and teaches about hell the most clearly is not Isaiah. It's not the apostle Paul and it's not the apostle Peter or John. It's Jesus Christ. And uh, and so the, uh, Dr. MacArthur is spot on here. No stern messenger of doom from the era of the judges, no fiery Old Testament prophet, no writer of imprecatory psalms, and no impassioned apostle, including the Boagenes brothers, the sons of thunder. Not even all of them combined mentioned hell more frequently or described it more in more terrifying terms than Jesus. And I think that's on purpose. I think if... Uh, if uh, it hadn't have been Jesus, we would be. It would be far too easy to dismiss it. Far too easy. But we continue. And the hell that Jesus spoke of was not merely some earthly ordeal or some sour state of mind or some temporary purgatorial prison. Jesus described hell as a place of torment in the afterlife. See Luke chapter sixteen, verse twenty-eight. A place of unquenchable fire. Mark chapter nine, verse thirty-three, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-five thirty. A place of eternal punishment. Matthew twenty-five, verse forty-six. Rob Bell is clearly unhappy with Jesus' teaching about hell. Let me read that again. Rob Bell is unhappy with Jesus' teaching about hell. He finds the very idea of hell morally repugnant and believes it is one of the main reasons, quote, why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. He scoffs at the idea that divine justice requires endless punishment for unrepentant sinners, in direct opposition to what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 25, verse 46. Bell insinuates that it would be a gross cosmic atrocity if the doom of the reprobate is everlasting in the same sense that heaven's blessings for the redeemed are everlasting. <clears throat> Yet that's exactly what Matthew 25, 46 clearly says. 
Bell's notion of sin seems to be that its main evil consists in the hurt that it causes to the sinner rather than the offense that it causes to a righteous and almighty God. His concept of justice makes the punishment of sin wholly optional. His idea of mercy falsely holds forth a false promise of automatic leniency and a second chance after death to people already inclined to take divine clemency for granted anyway. Oh, by the way, I, I just want to let you all know, this this just came in. Um uh, we got news from, uh, uh, well, I can't name the source, that uh, Osama bin Laden, when offered a second chance after he died, his post-mortem second chance, when he found out, that, number one, that there, would be, there wouldn't be 72 virgins, number two, that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God, contrary to what the Quran teaches, and, and that Allah was a false prophet, he decided against taking up God on his offer for a second chance. Just want to let you know, I I can't reveal the source there, but uh, the source is good, trust me. Anyway, continuing on. Rob Bell's God is um, clearly no one to be feared. That That all stands in direct and deliberate contradiction to everything Jesus ever taught about sin, righteousness, and judgment. By this pitting his own ideas against Jesus' message, this is so clear, this is so good, Bell makes it inescapably clear that he advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. He is wrongly, seriously wrong, heretically wrong to question the justice of God and to hold out false hope to unbelievers. He is, as we have seen from the start of the series, a textbook example of the false teacher who secretly introduces destructive heresies. See 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And must be said plainly, and that must be said plainly and emphatically. Just how serious is Rob Bell's heresy? It's not merely that he rejects what Jesus taught about hell. Bell rejects rejects the God of Scripture. He deplores the idea of divine vengeance against our sins. See Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He cannot stand the plain meaning of the text, like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that says, Our God is a consuming fire. He has no place in his thinking for the biblical description of Christ's fiery return with armies of angels dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 8. Bell's whole message is a flat contradiction of Jesus' words. In Luke chapter 12, verse 5, quote, But I will warn you uh, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Bell will have none of that. He therefore tries to eliminate the authority and clarity of Scripture so that he can reinvent a God who is more to his liking. It is the sin of all sins, the sin of of the serpent. Like Eve's tempter, Bell is subtly but undeniably uh, fomenting rebellion against the true God. He suggests that he is better, nicer, more kindly, more tolerant, more lenient than the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. He therefore sets aside God's revealed word and makes his own musings the inviolable standard. In effect, he wants to assume the role of God himself. That that is not a minor evil. It's epic. It is the original sin of Lucifer. 
As already shown, Rob Bell has been sowing doubt, confusion, and error in the church for years. His theological trajectory has been clear for at least a decade. The stance he takes in Love Love Wins is the predictable fruit of many other compromises and concessions to worldly opinion that were already well-established in Bell's earlier teaching. In fact, the most surprising thing about Love Wins is not the position Rob Bell takes— but the fact that so many people seem genuinely caught off guard and unaccountably confused by it. The record of Bell's own words makes it clear that this latest book of his is little more than a distillation of things that he's been saying all along. He abandoned Jesus' teaching years ago in favor of a different religion— one more in keeping with his personal preferences. He is pointing people toward the broad way that leads to destruction. The sad reality is is that if Rob Bell does not confess the truth in this life, one day he will realize how wrong his understanding of hell really is. His view of hell will be painfully altered forever when he receives the more, more severe punishment reserved for those who, with a Bible in their hands, mock God and trample the blood of Christ underfoot. See Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, or 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. My earnest prayer is for Rob Bell's repentance, but I am even more deeply and urgently concerned for the many untaught and undiscerning people who are being led astray by his toxic teaching. Jude, verses 22 and 23. It's time for faithful shepherds to speak up and warn the flock of the deadly peril posed by the false, uh, by false teaching such as this. It is also time for the people of God to proclaim the gospel more clearly and more carefully than ever, including the difficult parts of the message. For too long, evangelicals have been prone to omit the full truth about sin, righteousness, and judgment, falling back instead on dumbed-down, dampened, defanged versions of the message. In all candor, that is one of the main reasons there is so much confusion over Rob Bell's book among evangelicals today. To that, I have to say to John MacArthur, hear, hear, you're absolutely right. We have a sacred duty to preach what Jesus preached in the manner he preached it without toning it down or adjusting it to make it more suitable to secular culture. Those who trim or alter the message to avoid the parts that are offensive are not faithful ambassadors of Christ. Whatever their motives and despite their best intentions, their tamed and toned down versions of the gospel do not represent authentic Christianity. More often than not, the result is a different religion altogether. We need to weigh the fact carefully and see God's grace to remain faithful, to proclaim the true, unabridged, unadulterated gospel more clearly and more boldly than ever in a world that is growing less tolerant of the offense of the cross, more anesthetized against the fear of God, and increasingly hostile to Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, I couldn't agree with you more. All right, we are up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the missional manifesto as well as parts of the movie Audience of one, you are not going to want to miss this. Now, if you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christianity is unique in that it is based upon historical fact. None of the other religions are that in which if you could disprove one historical fact, the whole religion would crumble. But that's how it is with Christianity. If you can disprove that Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no such thing as Christianity. That's a topic of a debate for a live Table Talk radio presentation, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? The debaters is Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the book, What Do You Think About Jesus? versus Dr. Robert Price, fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. This all takes place on Pirate Christian Radio, Sunday night, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in live to pose your questions to the debaters. Listen to Table Talk Radio Live, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, on Pirate Christian Radio, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time.
I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. Morning, Rob Bell is the classic biblical definition of a wolf in sheep's clothing. You don't get to deny what the Bible says and impugn Jesus and then say that you're a Christian. That's ridiculous. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Just a reminder, okay? I've been talking about this, and I'll continue to talk about it. Um, Fighting for the Faith is uh, the—well, when you support us, you're actually supporting not only our radio program, but you're actually supporting all of Pirate Christian Radio. And what I mean by that is is that uh, uh, we're—supporting Fighting for the Faith— supports the whole mission of fight, of pirate christian radio because uh, it, you know if if you like uh listening to uh pirate christian radio and and hearing all of the things that we have to offer here we want to continue doing this and unfortunately at the moment we are not meeting our budgeted needs and so we want to keep doing what we're doing we love what we're doing we love being able to bring you sound doctrine Christ and Him crucified for our sins Christ centered uh, programming uh really good uh, apologetics in the work that we do here at, fight, at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, we can't keep going at the rate that we're going because even though our uh, our audience is growing, uh, the uh, the funding that has gone along with our audience growth hasn't well kept up. And so uh, we need your help. And uh, I cannot I cannot emphasize it enough. And in fact, our goal, <laughs> like, we're like far from even coming close to reaching it at the moment. We need to add about 350 uh, listeners to our crew. Now, you, you said that, that you think that doesn't sound like that many. You're right, it isn't that many. And when you, when you look at how many people are actually listening to Fighting for the Faith, 
I mean, it's it still would be a small fraction of our total listening audience. So if you are benefiting from this, you're loving hearing the gospel for you, even though you're a Christian, you love uh, what we're doing here, Then and you're growing and you're benefiting as a result of it, then uh, we need your help. We need you to partner with us financially and to help us uh, meet our uh, meet our budget so that we can keep doing what we're doing. So the way you do that, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. You know the drill. The first one says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis. It's not a lot of money, but that really truly does help us because what it does is it levels out our giving so that we can count on that. And if you're uh, somewhat new to listening to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, then join our crew. And when you do that, there are benefits. Number one benefit is is that you you will get you will get uh, access to all of the books that we are in the process of publishing as they come out. Most recently, we have published the book, uh, uh, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, and uh, getting some great feedback on that, by the way. And when you uh, join our crew, we're going to send you the link so that you can download that book for yourself and enjoy it for yourself. And then when the next book comes out at the end of May, beginning of June, you're going to have access to that as well. The other thing we're going to be doing here, and we'll talk about this, is um, you know how when uh, when churches or uh, uh, community uh, groups are having, well they, well, they need to do fundraising. Well, they have bake sales. Now, I can't, I can't bake, and uh, but <laughs> and that, the thought of it is just uh, killing me. Now, and and not only that, even if I could bake, it would not be a good idea for me to try to send to you baked goods in the mail. I I just don't think that I'm gifted enough to pack them and send them. And but we're gonna we're gonna call this our. Uh, 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 Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt bake sale, and what I mean by that is, is that um, uh, we are going to be making available, like shortly, like very shortly, um, a T-shirt that you can purchase. And um, for non-crew members, uh, the price of the t- of the T-shirt is uh, uh, twenty four ninety five plus shipping and handling. And if you live in in, in, uh, in outside of the United States, I, I don't know what the shipping and handling is going to be. But uh, but uh, for those of you who are crew members, you will be able to purchase that shirt for only nineteen dollars and ninety five cents. So you know it's like what twenty percent you know discount as a result of being a crew member. And so we're gonna I I will be giving details out on that shortly. It's our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio bake, uh, T-shirt bake sale. It's not really a bake sale, but we're selling the T-shirts. And here's the fun part about the T-shirts. Um, I'm making every single one of them. <laughs> You're going, what? Yeah, I know. It's uh, I have a you-do. And uh, and so he- here's what's going to happen is I've come up with a design. We've got the screens built, and uh, we're, 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 I made a prototype shirt yesterday. It's looking good. I had to make some modifications. And once I'm, I'm satisfied that everything's in place, here's the deal. Each and every shirt that that is purchased in our T-shirt bake sale will actually be handmade by me. The silk screening will be I will be doing it. So we're purchasing the T-shirts, and uh, and so when you buy your uh, your Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt, I, I will actually initial the tag on the back of the T-shirt, you know, with my initials on it. And yes, I will have been the person who actually did the silk screening on it. So. Don't ask. Just just don't ask details. It's best if you don't. And I promise I'll do a good job. But you, and when you get them, you're gonna go. Yeah, that looks like Chris made that. But uh, and then here's the deal. This each T-shirt will go to support Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith and help us 
uh, get you know help us meet our budget because we're currently not doing that. So anyway, of course, if you would like to make a, a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from the Christian Post, headline reads, The Missional Manifesto, and uh, this is an article written by Ed Stetzer, uh, the uh, missiologist there of Lifeway Publishing. Sorry, I needed to take a sip of my decaf coffee. Okay, um, and, uh, yeah, well, here, let me read a little bit, and I'll comment. Stetzer writes, he says, Today I want to point you to a newly released missional manifesto. You can find the full document here, and um, I'm not sure uh, what the website address is. Hang on a second here. Let me pull this up on my web browser. Um, you can see if you want. You can, it's called missional. The website, if you want to see this document for yourself, is missionalmanifesto.net. Missionalmanifesto.net. Now, if, you know, if you've been around the Christian church for like the last 10 years, um, this is one of those terms, and I've commented about this fact that the the word missional, it doesn't mean anything. I I just love when you get some guy in skinny jeans and a graphic tee and Rob Bell glasses sitting there going, "So, dude, we like need to be a, like a missional incarnational community of outreachnals, and uh, you know, and it does it." I am convinced the term missional is bureaucratic speak. Now, in the past, when we've covered the term missional on this program, I have pointed out that Ed Stetzer, in his own writing regarding missional, has made it clear that the term doesn't have a fixed meaning. This is problematic. And the reason why it's problematic is because if if the term missional doesn't have a fixed meaning, then what that basically means is that we're not dealing with a biblical term. This is a term in in search of a definition, and that's not how the Christian church operates. I'm going to come up with some term, and I'm going to call it missional, and I'm going to try to shoehorn in a definition of what all of that means. And uh, anyway, and uh, and you know, my friend uh, Dan Kimball, he's one of the signers and and uh, of this uh, of this missional manifesto. And I got to tell you, having read it, I. Th- it's it's complicated, convoluted, and I don't think it really helps. I think that the term missional itself is actually a detraction to really doing true evangelism. And uh, as a result of it, I, 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 I'm going to put my vote in and say, after reading the missional manifesto at missionalmanifesto.net, I think it's time that we scrap the whole term. Uh, yeah, it's. I don't think it's salvageable. I really, truly don't. And I know that that means that some people's careers might end as a result of it. That's okay. Uh, the the church is always looking for good evangelists, people who are missions minded, who want to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That I can wrap my head around because Jesus is the one who said that, and Jesus said, go and make disciples. I can wrap my head around that, teaching him everything I've commanded you. I, I can wrap my head around that. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I can wrap my head around that. I can't wrap my head around the term missional even after Stetzer, Alan Hirsch, Tim Keller, Dan Kimball, Eric Man, uh, Mason, J.D. Greer, Craig Ott, Linda Burquist, uh, Philip Nation, and uh, Brad Andrews took a crack at trying to define it. But let me read a little bit of this, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. Okay. 
Our purpose, Ed Stetzer writes, is to encourage and to bring clarity, to encourage believers to live missional lives. What does the term mean, Ed? And to clarify what what we mean when we use the term missional. This sounds like reasoning in a circle. Anyway, as you can tell from the definition at Wikipedia, there is no clear definition of the word. Actually, um, Ed, I want to point something out here. I've pointed out on your own blog, when you've written about the term missional itself, you have said, not Wikipedia, but you, Ed Stetzer, have said that the term doesn't have a fixed meaning. You've actually said that, and you're a missiologist. We continue. That should not shock us. Watch people debate words like grace, justice, and gospel. Yeah, the, here's the difference, though. When you when you debate a word like grace, when you debate a word like justice, or you debate a word like gospel, the Bible actually uses the term. And the Bible gets to be the thing that defines those terms. And so when people are debating that, usually what they're doing is bringing biblical text that says, you know, and it, you know, that define the terms so that we can make sure that our teaching and our understanding of those terms are in accord with what God's Word clearly teaches. The word missional is not a word that appears in the Bible. At least maybe it appears in the message paraphrase, but not in the, I don't even think it does there. But anyway, anyway, so let's see here. Um, but Alan Hirsch and I wanted to assemble a group of people to help us frame a document that might speak into what we mean when we use the word. Others will use it differently, fair enough. However, this is what a group of Christians put forward to say what they mean when they use the term and to encourage others to do the same. In the preamble, we say, quote, God is a sending God, a missionary God, who has called his people, the church, to be missionary agents of his love and glory. Already we've got problems. Um, The concept missional epitomizes this idea. This manifesto seeks to serve the church by clarifying its calling and helping its theologically understand and practically live out God's mission in the world today. (sighs) Hang on, I'm grabbing my highlighter here. Live out, live out God's mission in the world today. I see already this is an ambiguous phrase. What does this phrase mean? Live out God's mission in the world today. What does that mean? Although it is frequently stated God's church has a mission according to missional theology, a more accurate expression is God's mission has a church. See Ephesians chapter seven, uh, chapter three, verses seven through thirteen. Properly understanding the meaning of missional begins with recognizing God's missionary nature. The Father is the source of mission. The Son is the embodiment of that mission. The mission is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. By nature, God is the sending one who initiates the redemption of his whole creation. Jesus consistently... See, already we got another problem here. <sighs> what do you mean by uh, initiates the redemption of his whole creation? Yeah, we need some... Uh, Ah, Jesus consistently spoke of himself as being sent. Yes, he was. In John's gospel and subsequent commission uh, and subsequently commissioned his disciples for the same purposes and as the sent people of God, the church is the instrument of his mission. Okay, y- yes. Okay, Jesus sends the church. What is the church sent to do? Really simple. <laughs> Go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching, you know, teaching them to uh, to observe all that I have commanded you, or Luke twenty four, 
Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. This is not hard. And the, here, here's the other part of it is, is that I don't think the church, I don't, unless you really don't know how to read your Bible, I don't think the church is confused as to what its mission is. There's a whole lot of people who don't want to do the mission, but it's not like the mission itself in in the scriptures is ambiguous or unclear. It's clear and it's concise. <clears throat> Missional represents a significant shift in the way we understand the church, and that is the problem. As the people of a missionary God, we are entrusted to participate in the world the same way he does by committing uh, to be his ambassadors. Missional is the perspective to see people as God does, and to engage in the activity of reaching them. The church on mission is the church as God intended, but the primary focus is on the affirmations of this manifesto. It is our hope that these affirmations will encourage us toward biblical fidelity and missional engagement. Here are some excerpts from those affirmations. One, we affirm that God, uh, who is more holy than we can imagine, looked down, looked with compassion upon humanity, made up, made up of people who are more sinful than we will admit, and send Jesus into history to establish his kingdom and reconcile people and the world to himself. Jesus, whose love is more extravagant than we can measure, gave his life as a substitutionary death on the cross and was physically resurrected, thereby propitiating the wrath of God through the grace of God. When a person repents of their sin, confesses the Messiah as Lord, and believes in his resurrection, they gain uh, what the Bible defines as new and eternal life, and all believers are joined together into the church, a covenant community working as agents of reconciliation to proclaim and live out the gospel. How how do you live good news? Uh, no, um, yeah, maybe I'm just being too critical. I I don't, you know, but uh, I I see this as well. Not that it's missional. I just see this as mission creep. Why is it that 2,000 years after the establishment of the church, 2,000 years after Jesus Christ walked the earth, that we're, so, we're somehow backwards engineering some new concept of what the church is and what it's supposed to do? That's crazy. It's crazy. I, You know what? what no, I'm sorry, but um, I— I just don't see the missional manifesto as something that's going to take fire in the church. And the reason why is because it's suffering from a supreme lack of clarity as far as teaching in the biblical texts. As a result of it, this sounds like some kind of highfalutin um, attempt at some kind of slippery, not hard to define in some parts, uh, doctrinal statement that somehow tries to shoehorn into uh, the biblical teaching what the concept of missional is. If you're going to define missional, take me to the passages that use the term. And you're saying, well, you believe in the Trinity, and, 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 the, and the word Trinity isn't used. Yeah, that's correct. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. Yet at the same time, I could take you to every single passage that deals with the Trinity. And what I mean by that, that teaches that there is one God and that there are three persons who are the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The term itself, Trinity, was basically coined as a, as a way of, you know, an umbrella phrase to, you know, that's, that defines how God has revealed his nature in the biblical text. I don't see that same kind of clarity with the term missional. As a result of it, it's, it's basically a late 20th century 
uh, term that really, I don't think you can really, and not only that, under the term missional, all kinds of silliness has been brought into the church, and it's just, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't, I appreciate their attempt at be at trying to clarify, but when you read the document itself, they don't want to impose their their definition on other people, and they make that clear in their own document. So, um, what's the point of having a definition that isn't authoritative? Because if it, you know, if if this was a biblical teaching, it would actually be authoritative. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, just my thoughts on it. Okay, now we're going to go long on this second segment here in the first hour because I'm doing everything I can to avoid getting to Kerry Shook because that guy just gives me the heebie-jeebies. But he's our contestant number two in this year's worst Easter sermon of 2011. And so uh, what we're going to do at the moment is um, I'm going to play for you audio, uh, uh, some audio sound bites. Uh, from uh, from the movie, the documentary, entitled Audience of One. Now, if that term sounds familiar to you, it should. The reason it should sound familiar to you is because guys like um, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, and others have basically said, we're doing what we're doing because God has given me a vision for what he wants this church to do and to accomplish, and I serve an audience of one. We've heard this over and over again from seeker-driven, innovative, vision-casting pastors. This is exactly what is taught by Dan Sutherland in his Church Transitions seminar that we've played here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, if you haven't heard Dan Sutherland's Church Transitions uh, audio that I've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith, you need to do so. Um, it you know it's it it lays out basically the hostile takeover tactics uh, that are employed by seeker driven and purpose driven pastors to hijack a Bible teaching church and turn it into a seeker driven church. This is yeah, it's frightening stuff. But it teaches this innovative vision casting that the pastor is supposed to make himself. Um, you know, worthy to receive the vision from God for what God wants to do in his church. And then once the pastor receives that vision, he's to cast the vision, and then he's supposed to get people to get behind the vision, and then he's supposed to get rid of the people who won't get behind him in his vision. That's called shooting the wolves. And uh, and so, you know, in fact, at the seeker-driven churches, many times in January— one of the early, one of the first sermons done every single year at the seeker-driven churches is a vision-casting sermon. Every year they revisit the vision. Okay, and um, you know, in fact, if you go to, uh, you know, let me give you an example of a spooky uh, statement. Uh, go to Elevation Church's website. Go to Elevation Church's. Look it up. Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Pastor Stephen Furtick's uh, congregation. They have a, uh, they have what they call the code. And uh, in their code, in, uh, look at Article Number Four. It basically, says that you know that God, has, we, we, uh, I forget the exact phrasing. It's something to the effect of uh, viciously, um, uh, ravenously. <laughs> I'm using uh, <clears throat> wolfy terms on purpose there. But uh, let's just say they strongly defend the vision that God gave Pastor Stephen Furtick. For Elevation Church, that's the thing. And so, if you don't if you don't get behind his vision, well, then you're going against God. Well, <clears throat> there's a guy in San Francisco uh, who uh, who is the pastor of a Pentecostal church called the Voice of Pentecost. 
in the San Francisco Bay Area. His name is Richard Gazowski. Um, and um, he claims that he got a vision from God to create a Christian movie company that, and there's specific information. And he uses all of this Dan Sutherland, Blackerby, seeker-driven vision casting concepts at it to and basically claims that God gave him a vision for making this two hundred million dollar uh, Star Wars meets uh, the Ten Commandments kind of movie. And the movie audience of one follows the train wreck that is this. And so the thing I like about this particular movie, even though it's very painful to watch, is that it's got all of that same seeker-driven vision-casting doctrine and ideas locked up in in it. And this is what happens uh, when this thing goes really bad. And so as a result of it, you can see the problems a lot more clearer because – by the way, the majority, the majority of seeker-driven church plants where they teach these concepts, they fail. They fail within the first couple of years. And so even though this is not a church plant situation, this vision-casting idea that's going on in here is the same exact doctrine, theology, and assumptions about God that we see in the seeker-driven churches when they're doing their church plants. And the tragedy that ends up being what this church is is the exact same tragedy that many seeker-driven pastors and their congregations, their church plants, go through as a result of taking on this misguided, non-biblical way of doing things. And what gets lost in all of this? A clear proclamation of Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And the true mission of going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that Christ has commanded us. Christian disciples are to be readers and understanders and literate and studiers of God's Word. And as God's Word transforms and renews our mind, the Holy Spirit works on us and sanctifies us and leads us into good works that love and serve our neighbor in a way that makes us good ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But this stuff that you're going to hear in this segment is the exact opposite of what it means to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ and his gospel. This is complete mission creep to the point where he's off mission, he's off task, and it's just a tragedy what happens. So at the first couple minutes, there's background music to this, but uh, I want you to hear this. Here, here are some selected audio segments from the movie Audience of One. In my early childhood, I lived a life that was filled with childhood fantasies. Maybe that's one reason why God's given me the the gift of storytelling. Ten years ago, I was uh, praying on a mountaintop. The the Lord spoke to me like out of the blue, you will start a film company. I want you to be the Rolls Royce of filmmaking. Be better than anyone in the world. I believe God has given us a vision that's been very clear, and now we're seeing that vision fulfilled before. Okay, so he's got a vision from God. To create a film company that's supposed to be the Rolls Royce of film companies. 
So this is the message of the message of Christ to have a big dream, a big vision. Sound familiar? You should be thinking, "Sun stands still" at this point, right? Was to dream big. We really want to make the greatest film we guys. Really mean that. And boy, it, it's to me. I want to do something like the Titanic. It either sinks. And it's like the biggest flop you've ever seen in your life, or it sails and it just blows everybody's mind. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. In case you're thinking this is a joke, it's not. This is a, this is history. This is a historical documentary of the fiasco that is what's called Christian WYSIWYG Film Company. They told us we can't do it. They've laughed at me. I've had them mock me. I got a call two days ago from some guy that used to be a part of us. And he said, what? You're still trying to make movies? He said, I thought you would have given up a long time ago. <laughs> it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. What on earth? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That Oh, boy. I realize how impossible it is for us to do what we are doing, but I also know how great God is. Jesus, you gave everything to us. We praise you for your gift and blood. Lord, we are shooting this movie for you, for an audience of one. We're shooting this movie for you, for an audience of one. Again, this is seeker-driven code talk. This is all part of the vision casting innovative thing. You know, you don't don't listen to your detractors. You've got a vision from God. You have to live your life for an audience of one. I've heard this a million times. Because we know if we please you, that it'll reach the masses. It'll, it'll reach everyone that you desire to reach. Father, I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I know that most of you here today responded to an ad. Now, this is part of a cattle call for actors to respond to their Craigslist ad to be in their movie. In Craigslist, we're right now currently in the production of a movie called Gravity the Shadow of Joseph. The movie is billed as Star Wars meets the Ten Commandments. And what the movie is basically about is it is from the biblical story of Joseph. And we are going to begin principal photography in Italy. That's going to be where our first shoot's going to be. 
and yeah, that's exactly where they go. They actually send the, their film crew and actors and everybody to Italy, to a small little village there, and they take over the village in order to film this movie. It's unbelievable. Richard is my spiritual father. Now, this is a lady talking about Richard uh, Gazowski, uh, her pastor slash uh, director. Here, listen to this. I respect him in so many ways. Even if he's set on it, it's got to be this way, it's got to be this way. Even if I know he's wrong, I've just learned that, you know, I need to step back because ultimately God is really going to correct him because he does listen to God. And- so this this follower of uh, Richard Gazowski um, thinks that Richard hears from God. Does he? And he hears from God. Now, for us shooting 60 frames a second. Now, you got to listen to this thing. Okay. Let me let me set up this uh, this next one. Okay. In this little soundbite here, he's going to talk about the fact that how much money it's going to cost them to film this film. And they're going to film it at 60 frames per second. Now, those of you who know anything about video production, standard frame rate for any movie on the big screen... 24 frames per second. But he doesn't know anything about film or anything like that. And so he thinks that it's going to be better if they film this thing at 60 frames per second. Like it's going to make, oh man. With 70 millimeter film, it's costing us a horrendous amount of money. Jens uh, tried to convince me, let's go 24 frames a second. Let's do it how, you know, how it's normally done. And so we sat at the dinner table, and I said, man, if we're not going to push the edge, you know what I mean, why are we even doing it? What are we doing that's going to be any special? You know what I mean, that's going to make our film, you know, worth it people watching because we kind of feel our mandate is to be a leader you know? and, and if you lead that means you, there's no pathway there for you to follow you have to get out the old machete and start cutting away through the brush yeah so they're going to blaze a trail by filming at 60 frames per second you know here's the deal if it's if it's a schlocky movie if it's a bad script yeah it, 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 it all you're doing is wasting money filming it at all at 24 frames per second or 60 frames per second. It doesn't matter. I mean, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's not really hearing from God. And he's got all of these people wrapped up in helping to see his, quote, vision come to pass because God's given him a mandate to be the best. And this is ridiculous. God changes the world among a group of relatives. Yeah, here we go. And how many times have we heard about, you know, that God wants us to go and change the world? Again, this is these it's like this guy is a Pentecostal pastor who's been drinking heavily of seeker-driven vision casting uh, you know, literature. He chooses a group like this. I mean, I'm looking at what God has called us to do. He's preaching to his church to launch this movie industry. And I realize that 20 years from now, I'm, I'm looking at the executives of most of the major television networks sitting right in this room right now. I see that you're gonna be the major players in the movie industry and you go, well, how could that be? Now I wanna tell you something that attracts God. 
your extreme faith. I'm just going to ask the question, how is this any different than Stephen Furtick and Perry Noble and their vision-casting son stand still, uh, Mark Batterson, you know, grab a lion by the tail on a snowy day kind of stuff? It's the same thing, just complete delusions of grandeur. Who are we doing this movie for? Yeah, there we go. There's that audience of one stuff. An audience of one. We're doing it for God. So I want us to be very, very sincere about that, to please God in excellence, everything we do. God has already seen. He already seen this movie. Yeah, now this guy here, listen to this. God's already seen this movie. Yeah, they're on set in Italy here in this uh, segment. And this is one of his church parishioners who's traveled to Italy for the filming at, at at this village in Italy. By the way, they only shot two scenes in their entire week in Italy. He already has, and, and we're just got to do it and just move into it. That's right. He has faith. God's already seen this movie, and we've just got to move into it. How many times have you heard this kind of stuff? Praise God. Praise God. I thank God, too, because... I just want to greet you and say hi. Now he's talking to the folks in Italy in the Italian village. And uh, we have come from San Francisco. I am the pastor of a church in America. And so everyone in my church has put their money together to make this movie. This is people just like you. But they put all of their money together to make this movie. I now live with my mother in her house. Because I used the money from my house to make this movie. Really, this is a this is a time for celebration and praise. As most of you know, if you don't know, let me just kind of bring you up to speed. Ten years ago, um, I was uh, praying on a mountaintop, and now it all accumulates to this moment. When we now dedicate the largest movie studio in Northern California, this thing happened because of prayer, and every day we roll cameras, we are going to pray. We're opening every film shot with prayer. We want the presence of God to be in the studio. Can you say amen? God. So uh, that's kind of the journey, and here we are. And now the journey takes on a big, big thing. Yeah, what happened is is that there in San Francisco, there is an old uh, movie studio on Treasure Island in, in in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. Well, they convinced the uh, San Francisco uh, City Hall to uh, lease, uh, rent that uh, building to uh, WYSIWYG, uh, Christian WYSIWYG uh, Film produ- Production Company. And at the moment, what you're going to hear is them using shofars and speaking in tongues to anoint that building where they shot absolutely zero f- uh, sh- scenes for their movie. They didn't they didn't even use it and they ended up being evicted a few months later. So they're marching around inside of the big uh, film you know inside of the big studio building with banners and candles and people blowing the shofar. (laughs) 
So he's brought his entire church on his delusion of grandeur. everybody doing this morning? Yeah! Man! Oh, I'm telling you, it's God so cool. Now, he's going to give an update to his congregation here, and uh, things aren't going so well. They ain't filming nothing, and they can't pay their bills. I I can't tell you how enjoyable it is to serve the Lord. Now, I want to give you a couple of the facts. And and the reason I'm going to do this, because some of the stuff I'm going to share with you is going to sound maybe a little negative. And you can't freak out when you hear negative stuff because you've got to look through the eyes of faith. January, we did not have the money to pay the rent on the studio. The city is making a decision now they're going to let us stay. And you say, well, how can they let you stay? You're not paying the rent. Because I went to the deputy mayor and I told him, I says, look, we can't afford to pay the rent now, but funding's coming. He says, do you have proof of the funding? I said, you got my word. That's proof. Well, he says, I want it substantiated. I says, I'm not going to substantiate it for you. He says, why? I said, because you need to believe. This is not about me just believing. You need to believe. He says, but I'm with the city. I said, the city needs to believe. If you're going to have us make a Christian movie that costs $200 million and pour $200 million into this city's economy, you'd better believe. That's all God wants out of you is belief. He said, well, what's going on? I said, we are like Moses standing at the Red Sea. Now you're going to turn and run back into Pharaoh's army or are we going to believe God's going to open the Red Sea? Now notice the allegorization of the biblical text here. When's it coming? I have everybody ask me this question from the mayor down to the garbage collector of our trash. When's it coming? The wind blows where it, it will. Second wind! Second wind! Yeah, so now he's blowing the Holy Spirit on people and declaring a second wind. I have no idea what he's talking about. Second wind! You are receiving a second wind! Run! And here it comes, the second wind, yes! Oh, boy. Now, um, so, yeah, it doesn't turn out well for them. The city of San Francisco doesn't let them stay in their studio without paying for their electricity or their rent or anything of the sort. But, I mean, he had a lot of faith. I mean, because he's vision casting. And here's the deal. When, you know, the last step, when the vision doesn't come to pass, what you do is you recast the vision. What I want to talk to you about is the vision. Things have gotten incredibly intense. So here's uh, Pastor Gazowski recasting vision at this point. And we have been expecting miracles, but at the same time there's been attacks and all kinds of things that have happened. Where at times the only scripture I could get to explain what we're saying is that in the midst of battle there is much confusion and noise. Garments rolled in blood and cast into the fire for fuel for the flames. So in the midst of all of that, the Lord spoke to me and said, now is the time for you to share the vision before this house of the future. 
the long-term vision. Okay, so tinfoil pyramid hats on now. You will need them. Um, here comes the long. He's re, he, this is vision casting. He's he he lives for an audience of one because God's attracted to audacious faith. So this is him casting the 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 vision that God has given them, the long term vision for their congregation. Does any of this have to do with proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins? You, you be the judge. And so this is our vision for the future. We will launch 47 films a year out of our film studio. A Christian theme park that has the glory of God in it and is based on our films. Eight television networks. And the eighth channel will be a 24-hour prayer network. The Lord gave me a vision of the next generation of camera chip. And it is an organic living chip. We're going to own an airline. From here on out, buckle your seatbelts. 27 resort towns around the world. The seventh arrow is that he's taking us into outer space. I told you, buckle your seats. And the last arrow that he showed me is we will colonize another planet. So there you go. Vision casting 101, thanks to uh, Richard Gazowski and his failed movie, Oh, man, from the movie Audience of One. We'll, we'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. The Bible calls this sin, but... Basically, sin is just trying to control, is trying to play God. It just means that we think we know better than God does how to run our lives. And what we do is we take the helm away from God, and we raise the flag of ego, and we set sail on the SS individual. And ego simply means edging God out. We edge God out, and we take the wheel, and we struggle for control, and we try to steer our own lives. By the way, he's... um standing at the helm uh, of his pirate ship there. And eventually we steer our lives into the rocks and the reefs and we're shipwrecked and we start to sink. Eventually? Eventually? Yeah, see, here's the deal. The biblical teaching is, is that all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins. It's not like we were just doing fine and that we're all decent people you know, who who from time to time, you know, maybe steered a little close to the rocks. No, no, no. Each and every one of us is already born shipwrecked. Sorry, I bought into the metaphor here. And instead of finding the treasure that our heart is longing for. Oh, brother. Hang on, I'm going to find a biblical passage. I think it's in Romans 5 or 8. Hang on a second here. If you got your Bible, um, i got to pull up my computerized Bible. I didn't have it opened here. Can you believe that? I, I started the program without my computerized Bible open? What, what is the world coming to? Um, hang on a second here. Is it Romans 5? 
No, I no, I think it's here it is. It's Romans 8. <clears throat> Let me read a little bit of a biblical passage for you for this Easter sermon. Have we have we have we heard really the Bible yet? No, I, I don't think we have. <clears throat> well, we'll hear it from me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The, for the, to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, let me back up the Carrie Shook audio, which means we're going to hear a little bit more of the sermon than I even want to. But I want you to hear what he said. Listen. Brett, and we start to sink. And instead of finding the treasure that our heart is longing for, we find just the opposite. Uh, so the treasure that our heart is longing for apparently is a life with God. But here it says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We've got a problem here. It's a deficient view of sin in, in the fact that he's not correctly getting to the point of our sinful nature. Well, there are three negative results of taking the helm away from the true master and commander. Three negative results. I can hardly wait to hear these. First, it causes exhaustion. Exhaustion. Number one, the big... Yeah, see, here's the problem. Uh, you, you get in a fight with the master and commander of your, of, of your ship, and that's Jesus, and you're going to become exhausted. Hmm. When you try to sail solo... You try to control everything in your life. It just leaves you exhausted. I read an article recently about solo sailing. These brave men and women who attempt to sail solo around the world on a sailboat. Now, of course, it's incredibly dangerous. But the sailors who have attempted this trip say that the very worst thing about it is that you're always on point. You can never let up, even for a minute. They go for months with never sleeping for more than just a few hours at a time. Because when you're sailing solo, you're the only one you can look to if you get into trouble. If bad weather comes, if something on the boat breaks, they're the only ones who can handle it. There's no one else to turn to. And for that reason, sailing solo is one of the most exhausting sports there is. And it's the same way in life. When you're sailing solo and trying to be in control, it's exhausting. You just feel overloaded and overwhelmed. So bring Jesus on as a crew member, and you won't be so tired. But not only do you experience exhaustion, you also experience emptiness. And when we try to take the helm from God and be the captain of our own ship and steer our own lives, it leaves us exhausted, it leaves us empty, but it also leaves us susceptible to the enemy. 
I read recently where a guy who was sailing around the world was attacked by modern-day pirates, drug runners off the coast of South America, and he had to fight them off. That's because when you sail solo, you're vulnerable because modern-day pirates are always looking for boats on the open water that are unprotected. And that's the way it is in life. If you sail solo in life, you're vulnerable to the real pirate, our enemy. See, God has a purpose. Um, <clears throat> didn't Jesus say to people that, um, that the devil was their father? You are of your father, the devil. Um, see, yeah, the, the, the condition, the sinful condition that's described in the Bible is like way worse than this. It's not that we leave ourselves susceptible to the enemy. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, no, he, um, let's go with the pirate ship metaphor again here. Since, I mean, Carrie Shook brought it up. No, it's like this. It's like Satan came and uh, took over the ship, and he's enslaved us on the ship and basically said, you've got to fight for me, and we're going to be hostile against God. You're, you now belong to me. Let's go kill our enemy, God. You've sided with the enemy. He's taken you captive. You, he, you're not susceptible to him. You're already in his grips. You're under his power. You're under his spell. You're, you're in league with him. You, you are a, a, a pawn on his chessboard. You are a, a private in his army. Uh, you, you get what I'm saying here? It's not that we... If, well, <laughs> If you rest away the helm from Jesus, then you make yourself susceptible to becoming tired and 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 you leave yourself open to you know to the attacks of the enemy. It's give me a break. Purpose for your life, and it's a good one, but Satan also has a purpose for your life. And that's why Jesus said in John 10 10. No, hang on a second. I've got to back this up. Did you catch that little purpose spiel uh, spiel here? That are unprotected. And that's the way it is in life. If you sail solo in life. You're vulnerable to the real pirate, our enemy. See, God has a purpose for your life, and it's a good one. God has a purpose for your life, and it's a good one. Okay. And it's a purpose-driven gospel. But Satan also has a purpose for your life. And that's why Jesus said... In yeah, uh, we're or <laughs> human beings by nature are under the power of the devil. They have sided with him. John 10.10. 10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. Oh, man. <clears throat> you know, it's been a while since uh, I've had to deal with the John 10.10 out of context thing. Let's do that because I would rather read Jesus than listen to Carrie Shook. Um, John, <laughs> John chapter 10. Um, now, remember our three rules for solid sound biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context, okay? In order to get the proper context of a passage, for instance, John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, or whatever. Everyone quotes this out of context, and they don't, and, and it, it, they make it sound like, you see, Jesus wants you to have this a big, abundant life, and what does that mean? Well, the abundant life means... Uh, being well-to-do, having a good purpose, uh, a great job, uh, uh, attentive spouse, you know, uh, better than average romantic endeavors in the bedroom, um, well-behaved children, uh, a, a, a well-padded 401k, things of that nature. Yeah, but that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. And it, it really becomes clear when you read 
the passage in context. Now, it just so happens that the context of that passage doesn't begin in uh, in chapter 10. It begins really in chapter 9, in chapter 9. So um, we're going to start at John chapter 9, verse 1. If you have your Bible, flip on over there. I'm reading from the ESV. That's the English Standard Version. I lovingly refer to it as the English Sanctified Version. Uh, perfectly great translation, uh, the one that I, I've preferred for the past few years now. And it begins with the story of a blind man. Now, you're going, why are you starting all the way at the beginning of chapter 9? Well, the reason why is because you don't really get what's going on in chapter 10 unless you read it as it was meant to be read. This is part of a bigger story. The thought begins here at the beginning of, the, of chapter 9. Now watch. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered them, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now notice the, the immediately the uh, the immediate assumption here is that because he's blind, he's blind because of someone's sin, his sin or whatever. Now, in this particular case, Jesus isn't thinking in, along the lines of the cosmic quid pro quo. The reason why he was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. No one ever anticipated that. Now watch what happens. So he's blind, right? Now, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. Now, important part here. This guy still has not actually seen Jesus. This is a critical piece of information in this story, okay? He has heard Jesus' voice, right? Because Jesus sent, you know, and Jesus made mud and put mud and put it in his eye, okay? And you'll notice here in this particular case, you know, we don't use mud to open the eyes of the blind, but Jesus did, Okay, you can you can argue this is this is something that points us to the concept of the means of grace, promises of God, the power of a God attached to ordinary means, but that's kind of missing the point here too. But uh, but let's continue with the story. <clears throat> now, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, well, it it is he. Others said, no, it just looks like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to them, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, here's the fun part. 
It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He, Jesus, put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, Well, he's a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and that he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, Well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. I, I, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? So they reviled him, saying, now watch how they revile him. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, <laughs> this blind man... Do you think he has faith in Jesus at this point? Listen to the reviling and the persecution that he's experiencing at their hands. And what did he do? He was just healed. Rather than giving glory to God, and that was what they commanded him to do, give glory to God. Yet they should have been the ones giving glory to God. It's these Jews, these Pharisees, who do not understand what the purpose of the law is, nor do they understand the gospel. And they are without excuse because the Old Testament does teach the gospel and salvation by grace through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis chapter 15 so clearly teaches us. Or regarding the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his stripes we are healed. All of these good gospel passages point us to the Messiah, the one who would come, who would be Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh, come to bear the sins of the world and to offer forgiveness. That's why the psalmist says, O Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So everything is backwards here. These legalistic, self-righteous religionists, not just religionists, but legalistic, self-righteous religionists, are demanding that this blind man give glory to God when he, he's saying he, they need to give glory to God because, look, never since the world began has it ever been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he can do nothing. And he's right. So they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. Now notice, Jesus clearly said at the beginning of the story that this man was born blind so that the works of God may be revealed in his life. His blindness was not a result of anyone's sin. And so these legalistic, self-righteous religionists say, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And so they cast him out. And here's the most beautiful part of the story. And this is the pivotal part where it goes from narrative into teaching. But watch what happens here because this frames then what goes on into, into John chapter 10. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And it says, having found him, Jesus heard that they had cast this man out and Jesus sought him. And here's what he does. Now, remember, this guy has never met Jesus. He's only, well, he, does, he hasn't seen him. He's met him, but he's only heard him. He hasn't seen what he looks like. So Jesus found him, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, so that I might believe in him? And this is the beautiful part. <laughs> Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. And it says that the blind man then worshipped Jesus. Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to this man. And he knew that the Messiah was God in human flesh. And he did the unthinkable. He worshipped Jesus. He worshipped him. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. And Jesus didn't turn him away. He accepted his worship because Jesus is truly our great God and Savior. And then begins the teaching. Watch what happens. So Jesus said, It is for judgment that I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see might become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
Now notice Jesus here is basically making the claim that these Pharisees, these self-righteous religionists, are the ones who entered the sheep pen through a, a way that they should not. They are thieves and they are robbers. And that's exactly what they are. Because they're not giving glory to God, they're reviling God. They're persecuting the Son of God. This should show you that these evil, wicked, self-righteous people, in the name of religion, are persecuting the Son of God. It should divulge to you that their religion is of the devil. Because only a religion of the devil would persecute, malign, and revile Jesus Christ, our one true God and Savior. You see what's going on here now? So Jesus now is exposing their sin and showing them for what they really are. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and he's a robber. There is no there is no office of Pharisee in the Scripture. The Pharisees are usurpers. There's no office of Pharisee in the Scriptures. These guys have set themselves up. They've climbed into the sheep pen on their own authority with no calling from God at all. And they stand in judgment of God himself. So then Jesus continues, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them, for I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, false teacher, comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. These are agents of the devil. I came so that they can have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's referring to the Gentiles, by the way. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So that's the whole teaching here. So John 10.10, when you put it back in context, Jesus is not saying that he came so that you can have a purpose or a career 
or a healthy marriage or good finances, uh, a 3,000 square foot house in the suburbs with a swimming pool. Um, No, that's not that's not what he's talking about here. That's not the abundant life that he's referring to. In fact, this whole passage, it's about Jesus, the shepherd of our souls. And it's about Jesus in contrast to the false teachers, those who steal and kill and destroy. Self-righteous usurpers who were not called by God, who put themselves into positions of authority, and now they stand in judgment of God himself in human flesh which tells you that they are the ones who have sided with the devil. Now do you see what's going on in this passage? So when a seeker-driven passage uh, pastor quotes John 10.10 10 to you, you should immediately have a red flag going on in your mind going, that's not what Jesus was saying. I'm not hearing the voice of my good shepherd here. I'm hearing the voice of a usurping religionist who is twisting the words of my Savior and my shepherd, and I will not listen to his voice because he is twisting the words of my Lord. That's what you ought to be doing when you hear somebody misquoting John 10.10 the way you're hearing Carrie Shook do it here. In John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. Satan's a pirate that wants to steal the treasure that God has designed for you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill your dreams. He wants to really, really Satan wants to kill my dreams. Oh, good night. To destroy your relationships. In the 16 and 1700s, pirates ruled the Caribbean, and they would raid merchant ships and steal their valuable cargo until finally the authorities got tired of having all their valuables stolen from them, so they commissioned ships to go after the pirates to take back what was rightfully theirs. Hey, that's the story of Easter. The master and commander came from heaven, and he came to take back what was rightfully his, what had been stolen away, and that which he wanted to give freely to us because we've all had our innocence stolen. We've had our purpose in life stolen. We've had our joy stolen. We've had our... I've had my purpose in life stolen. Unbelievable. Dream stolen. But the master and commander came to take back what was rightfully his and then give it freely to us. And that's why he says in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Well, what is the trade? Now, again, notice, that's not what John 10.10 says at all. I read it for you, put it back in context, and he's totally mangling that text. And here comes his wife again to preach. treasure of Easter that Christ came to give us. Well, first, Christ came to give us the treasure of sacrificial love. When Jesus died on the cross, he showed us what real love is. Now, real love is something that's very hard for us to understand. Because in our culture today, the word love is so overused. We say, I love Rocky Road ice cream, and I love the Astros, and I love my husband. But it's all conditional love. It's all love with strings attached. It's saying, I love you if. I love you if you meet my needs. I love you if you love me back. It's saying, I love you if. 
And that's the problem in most relationships today. It's this conditional love. It's this, I love you if. And really most relational conflict is just two people fighting. And how on earth did we steer into relational conflict? What on earth are we talking about here? Over control. Because when I take the helm of my life away from God and I start trying to control everything in my life, then I also try to control my relationships. And most relational conflict is two people fighting over control and not realizing they're on the same team. And you start fighting over control and before you know it, you're fighting over things that don't even matter. And sometimes you can't even remember what you're fighting over. Kind of like preaching about things that don't even, you know. And it doesn't draw you closer at all. It just pushes you further away. But when I give up the helm of my life to the master and commander, then Jesus take the wheel, literally. He frees me from being focused on power and he focuses my heart on love and it changes my relationships. See, if you wanna see what love is, you need to look to the cross on Good Friday because you'll see a picture of sacrificial love. Notice what he's doing with the crucifixion here. Now, there is a clear biblical passage that says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Why do I feel like we're getting a reductionistic view of the cross here that kind of just turns the cross into just an example of love that we can follow ourselves? That's frightening. Something that's so hard for us to understand and grasp because... We love so conditionally. We put so many strings attached to our love. It's that I love you if, but when you look to Jesus Christ, you see what 1 John 3.16 says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's right. There are passages that demonstrate this. (sighs) But again, he's kind of steered the conversation or the preaching at this point into relational conflict. So the cross is the cure for relational conflict. Oh, man. And in some sense, this is actually true from a sanctification point of view. But we're, we're, missing kind of the, we're missing the bigger picture here. See, Christ gave his life for us even when we didn't love him back. That's not I love you if. That's I love you, period. I love you because I love you because I love you. That's the kind of love that we see at Easter. Easter gives us the treasure of sacrificial love. The master and commander came at Easter to give us the treasure of sacrificial love and then to teach us how to love. But Christ also came to give us the treasure of new beginnings. When we try to be the captain of our own ship, we steer into storms and our ship gets battered and eventually we hit the rocks and start to sink. But fortunately, because of Easter, we can receive the treasure of new beginnings. So we can completely wreck hundreds of ships. I mean, that's just great news. Because we all need a fresh start. Yeah, I need about 10 of them a day. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. God specializes in new beginnings. He loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. Oh, man. What did you just do? You did not just do that, Carrie. I mean, seriously. God loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. You've just allegorized Jesus' death and resurrection 
and taken our setbacks and problems in life as a result of our sin and liken them to crucifixions and God wanting to raise them from the... Oh, man. Oh. And today, he can resurrect a dying dream. Oh, no, 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 no. This... Yeah, that's right. Boo, boo. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Oh, it's just. Oh. Today he can resurrect a dying relationship. Oh man! Stop it! Stop it! I'm gonna pull you over and give you a ticket. Unbelievable. He can resurrect a dying marriage. Oh, no, no, no! That is not what Easter is about. He can work miracles because he loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections and give new beginnings. But some of you can't set your sails to catch the positive winds of change. I am going to die. (laughs) I'm going to lose it. Because you're still stuck in the past. And I find we carry some cargo from our past that keeps us from really living in the present. Oh, no. It's a cargo metaphor. There are two types of cargo from the past that tend to load us down in life. Oh, no, please don't go here. First is the cargo of resentment. Oh. (laughs) I I just can't. No, you did not do this. Then there's the cargo of regret. Oh. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm speechless. There's resentment over the way I've been hurt, and there's regret over the way I've hurt others. See, every one of you in this room have been hurt. Every one of us. Yeah, we're all just big victims. But how you handle that hurt will determine where you sail in life. Oh, man. This is horrible. So what is it you've never been able to get over? Uh, Bad, seeker-driven pastors and horrible sermons like this. Is it that abusive relationship from your past? Or maybe it was the time you were completely and utterly rejected. Or maybe it was that former business partner who stabbed you in the back and was dishonest. What is it you've never been able to get over? God says, let it go. Jesus Christ wants to free you from the prison of your resentment this Easter. I I feel my resentment levels increasing as I'm listening to the sermon. You can go on with your life. God says, let it go to me and I'll settle the score. A boatload of bitterness will just sink your ship. (laughs) A boatload of... Bitterness will sink your ship. Oh, yeah, you don't want your boat laden with bunches of bitterness. It'll send you right to the bottom, matey. Oh, man. A boatload of bitterness will just sink your ship. The cargo of resentment just loads you down and keeps you from experiencing God's joy in the present. Oh, boy. But because of Easter... We can take all the resentment that's built up from all our past hurts. Now he's picked up the cargo of resentment. And we can throw it overboard. Oh, serious? 
Got to throw that emotional cargo overboard. Yeah. And be free. And it's a good feeling. Yeah, you know what's more powerful than just throwing it overboard? How about forgiveness? Forgiveness. Yeah. See, that bitterness only hurts you when you hold it in. But when I let it go and I throw it overboard. No, no, no. You don't let it go. You forgive it. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness, it's tied directly to the gospel. It is far more powerful than letting go, whatever that means. You know, when you think about letting go, I think of uh, the movie Titanic. You know, you got Rose and Jack, you know, at the, the boats sank and the, she's hanging on to some piece of wood there. And, and he's he's in the water freezing to death. And then finally he freezes to death and she lets him go and he sinks and disappears into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, no, 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 no. Forgiveness ties it all back to the cross. <sighs> then I can set my sails to sail into the future. And then there's the cargo of regret that we get loaded down with as we journey through life. Nobody's perfect. All of us have made mistakes. All of us have things we wish we could change. Things we've said that we desperately wish we could take back. Things we've done that we wish we could erase from our lives completely. Yeah, 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 like watching the sermon. Opportunities that we've missed, that we wish we had one more chance at, but we don't. But every sin and every mistake that you and I have ever made, Christ died for on the cross. Now, I want to point something out. You're hearing, you're hearing some version of the gospel, but the way this whole thing is being presented, it's not being presented in a biblical way, in a way that really gets to the heart of the issue. Are you hearing about, uh, is the law being preached in such a way that you're brought to repentance and contrition for the things that you've done wrong, where you're genuinely sorry and know that you've offended a just and righteous God and that you deserve his wrath and his punishment. The way it's being handled, it's being handled in such a way that the magnitude and the gravity and the real the real weight of our sin is not being dealt with correctly. As a result of it, the gospel sounds kind of silly. Because of Easter, guilt is a cargo that's totally unnecessary. All you have to do is give your sin and your guilt to him. Because we all have regrets. We've all... He's now picked up the... cargo box that's named regret gonna throw this one overboard too. watch it'll be so powerful sand we've all made mistakes and we carry around this heavy cargo and we don't even realize it sometimes and it comes out in all different ways sometimes it even makes us sick but it definitely hurts our relationships and it hurts us but because of easter i can throw it overboard and i i uh, just Ah, man, I feel like a woman. I can be free, and it's a great feeling to have a clear conscience, not because I deserve it, but because of what he did for me at Easter. When I'm the captain of my own ship, I have no one else to blame for my dumb decisions and my mistakes. (laughs) I don't think he meant it this way, but I'll tell you what I just heard. He said, when I'm the captain of my own ship, I don't have anyone else to blame for my mistakes. In my warp and twisted mind, I have that. Well, then great. I'll make Jesus the captain of my ship so that I can blame him for them all. <laughs> and all of my faults and sins other than myself. But the good news of Easter is Christ says, I'll take your place. I'll take your punishment. I'll give you a fresh start. The tre- Yeah, you're hearing, again... 
because the sin issue isn't really being dealt with in a sober, clear, exegetical, from the text kind of way, the problem kind of sounds kind of shallow, not so serious. As a result of it, Jesus taking our punishment, I mean, it's, I mean, by the way they're describing the problem, it sounds like Jesus went into a timeout for us, you know? The treasure of Easter is the treasure of sacrificial love, which gives us the treasure of new beginnings, which leads to the treasure of eternal life. Death is the great equalizer. No one can escape it, though no one likes to talk about it. No one can escape it, whether you're president, king, whether you're rich or poor, we will all face the final voyage. But the master and commander came at Easter to defeat death, so I don't have to be afraid of death. That's why 1 Peter 1.3 says, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. Because Christ rose from the dead, you don't have to be afraid of death. For the believer, death is not the end, it's just the beginning. On Good Friday, Satan, the pirate, raised the flag of death and he thought he'd won the victory. But three days later, the master and commander rose from the dead and he defeated death once and for all. Okay, just so you know, you'll probably want some popcorn for this next segment. I'll have to explain to you what's going on. We're going to uh, basically watch a combination of uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean meets the Passion of Christ. Yeah, Johnny Depp and Jim Caviezel kind of collide into this collage of, of Easter piratey madness. Yeah. Once upon a time, long ago, when pirates ruled the oceans, there lived a legend greater than them all, a powerful captain who... So you got two kids uh, listening to a pirate story and... ...sailed the high seas... The captain's marvelous adventures have all been recorded in his legendary ship's log, and word of his mysterious powers have been handed down from generation to generation. He was like no other man who ever lived, for he had two fathers, one who lived on this earth and the other who lives beyond the moon and stars. They say he could walk on water and calm a raging storm with one wave of his hand. They say he could heal the wounded and bring the dead back to life. They say he couldn't be killed, and that to this day, he's still alive. Is this a true story? Close your eyes and just imagine. And so the kids are on the deck, uh, the poop deck of um, Carrie Shook's pirate ship. Look, a treasure chest. So was he a pirate who stole treasure? No, he was a commander whose life was a treasure, and he gave it away. They called him master and commander, and he sailed the seas with a crew of only 12. And for 30 pieces of silver, one of them became a traitor. Mocking the commander, they placed a robe and a crown on him. He would sail into his final port called Calvary. There, nails would be the final weapon they would use to destroy him. But the master and commander predicted all this. At his final supper, he told his crew that he would spill his blood and die for them. It was the night 
before the battle. There was a battle? Yes, the most evil pirate to ever live waged an all-out war for the commander's life. Take the ship! And it looks like they're a <clears throat> praise and worship pastor now with a pirate patch on. And... Now they're hoisting the pirate flag. Run up the flag! Oh, the suspense. Prepare the guns! Here comes the cannon fire. Yeah, by the way, this is a live-action part of it. They're actually firing the cannons from the pirate ship right, well, live during the Easter service. It's just like Las Vegas, you know, where the pirates fight and then the, the ship sinks, yeah. Without the water, though, or the really cool acrobatics or... It's an extrasensory perception type of thing here. And now comes uh, some uh, video segments from Jesus being flogged and scourged and crucified from the movie The Passion of the Christ. Talking about the movie The Passion of the Christ, you know, I read a story in the uh, Telegraph in the UK that uh, Jim Caviezel, uh, the guy who played Jesus in that movie, ever since playing, uh, you know, Jesus in that movie, he's pretty much been blackballed by uh, the Hollywood uh, movie makers. Quite the experience, yes. Here comes some resolution type music. Now they're showing a piece of paper where somebody says he's not here, he's risen. And there goes the stone rolling away from the tomb. And the shroud just emptying out somehow, and he's alive. Ta-da!
And now you have the praise and worship uh, metrosexual pastor dude on the pirate ship singing this important Easter song. Uh, this is all part of the uh, Easter sermon experience there at Fellowship of the Woodlands. Would you stand and sing this with us, my Savior lives? I guess I should say cue sappy music. I mean, I don't know. song's kind of like a mantra. I mean, that, that's all you got. My Savior lives. My Savior lives. My Do you uh, <clears throat> lyrics from a real uh, Easter hymn? <laughs> Good night. Um, let's see uh, here. I just want to pick one. Um, why not? Alleluia, Jesus is risen. Let's just do a little comparative work here. Alleluia, Jesus is risen. Trumpets resounding in glorious light. Splendor, uh, the Lamb. Heaven forever. Oh, what a miracle God has in sight. Walking the way, Jesus in the center, telling the story to open our eyes, breaking our bread, giving us glory. Jesus, our blessing, our constant surprise. Now all the vault of heaven resounds. Popular Easter hymn. We'll just do a little comparative work on the lyrics here. Now all the vault of heaven resounds in praise of love that still abounds. Christ has triumphed. He is living. Sing choirs of angels loud and clear. Repeat their songs of glory here. Christ has triumphed. Christ has triumphed. Alleluia. 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 One for each of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second stanza. Eternal is the gift he brings. Therefore our heart with rapture sings. Christ has triumphed. He is living. Now still he comes to give us life and by his presence stills all strife. Christ has triumphed. He is living. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. 
O fill us, Lord, with dauntless love, set heart and will on things above, that we conquer through your triumph, grant grace sufficient for life's day, that by our lives we truly say, Christ has triumphed, he is living. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Adoring praises now we bring, and with heaven, heavenly blessed sing. Christ has triumphed, alleluia, be to the Father and our Lord, to the Spirit blessed, most holy God, all the glory, never ending, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd go with the hymn. It has a lot more meat to it, you know what I mean? This has all of the feel like a Las Vegas show. Yeah, maybe one of those, you know, pirate dinner theaters, you know? Lovely, lovely. Let's see if Carrie's checking his wife come back. Here they come. You can be seated. Jesus Christ is alive. So the big question is, do you know for certain where you're going to go when you die? All right, so here comes the evangelistic part of it. All of the, the pirate ship, the uh, pirate dinner theater, the um, 7-Eleven praise song. Um, that sounded more like a mantra. Uh, you know, all of that is uh, now we're going we're gonna to close the deal here what Easter's all about. The master and commander came and defeated death. And that's why we celebrate. It's not a funeral service. It's a celebration service because Christ is alive. Heaven's a perfect place. It's a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more problems, and no more death. Heaven is a perfect place, but that means heaven is a perfect place for perfect people. And that's why I didn't stand a chance, and neither did you. Until the master and commander sent his rescue ship, his son, Jesus Christ. He's our savior. He's our rescuer. And what's he saving us from again? Uh, a bad life, an unabundant life. So it really comes down from resentment and bitterness. Down to one question. Who's at the helm of your life? You or God? Don't you think it's time to give up? Don't you think it's time to surrender control of your life to the master and commander? Raise the white flag over your ship, yeah, okay. Who created you, the master and commander who knows what's best for you, the master and commander who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. Aren't you tired of trying to control everything and be the general manager of the universe and hold it all together? Yeah, see, I. it's not that you're sorry for your sins. You're just tired of, of all the effort that it takes to run the universe, okay. Aren't you exhausted? Oh, yeah. Just this sermon has exhausted me for sure. Aren't you empty? Yep. That's exactly what this sermon left me feeling. Don't you feel like you have nothing left to give? Yeah. I'm pretty much done with this sermon. 
So let me ask you again, do you know for certain you'll go to heaven when you die? Maybe you'd say, Carrie, I think so. I hope so. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I try to do my best. I try to treat people fairly. I try to do good works. Well, nobody's perfect. It's not about your good works. It's about God's work on the cross. Yes, it is. All I have to do is accept it and let him take the helm of my life. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Christ has already done for you. So if you're tired, yeah, that's the big appeal. If you're tired of all the effort that it takes to run the universe, just run up the white flag and surrender to Jesus and and he'll come and, and he'll be the master and commander of your ship. Is that a clear presentation of the biblical gospel? Is that what it means to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? It's just trusting what he's done and giving him the helm of your life. And it says it real clearly in Romans 10.9. At least we'll get a Bible verse to back it up. Say the welcoming word to God. What are you reading from? Jesus is my master, embracing body and soul. Are you reading the pirate English edition? God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. (laughs) What? (laughs) What are you reading? Holy smokes. I mean, please (laughs) tell me that's the message. Holy guacamole. Let let me read Romans chapter 10. I'll start at verse 5 so we can hear it from a real translation. Good gravy. Yeah, I mean, so you're going to the obligatory decision theology, make a decision for Jesus piece of this. You're going to throw in the message paraphrase of Romans chapter 10, which convolutes it so beyond recognition. I don't even know what that passage is saying. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the, that does the commandments will have to live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great passage. Why is he messing this up by reading it from that schlocky message? That's salvation. Salvation is just saying, Jesus, you're my master and commander. I'm going to lose it. I surrender to you control of my life. I surrender to you to forgive me of my sins. I surrender to you to take me to heaven one day. I can't get there on my own. That's what salvation is. I hope you enjoyed the message today. And it's always a message of hope in Jesus Christ, our only hope. And if you've never received him, 
You can do that right now, right where you are. You can do Okay, we're done. We're done. I, I can't I cannot listen to another second of this sermon. I'm going to just completely lose it. So that's uh, contestant number two for this year's uh, edition of the worst Easter sermon of the year. Good night. So uh, what did you think? Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts you know, and your financial contributions, literally, in order to keep doing what we're doing. Right now, we're currently behind uh, uh, in meeting our budgets for the year. And uh, we need your help financially to keep uh, keep plowing ahead doing what we're doing. If you don't already support us financially, please visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there. You can either join our crew at six ninety five a month, or you can ask, or you can make a one time contribution by clicking on the donate button. Uh, I want to thank you in advance for your uh, for your support. And those of you who join our crew, will be sending you a link so that you can download our latest book. The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a clear exposition of the gospel and Christ's sufferings on on behalf of you and your sins. And it's just good, comforting gospel preaching that you hear, that you'll read in that that book. And it's it's, uh, in a class way, way outside of and above what you just heard in this sermon. So... All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.